Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Daniela Ligiera, who is the Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of Together for Girls. Now, Together for Girls is a global public-private partnership dedicating to ending violence against children with a particular focus on sexual violence. They were founded in 2009, and Together for Girls is a partnership that brings together national governments, UN agencies, and private sector organizations to prevent and respond to violence as a fundamental step to achieving individual rights and well-being, gender equality, and sustainable development. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. Incidentally, since today we are talking about tackling sexual violence, Worth pointing out, Quilt AI have done interesting research into online activity and gender-based violence during the pandemic in several countries across South Asia and Southeast Asia. Things such as online searches related to sexual violence and how they've grown in various countries. So check them out at quilt.ai. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Daniela Ligiero, who is the Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of Together for Girls. Daniela, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much, Alberto. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, it's wonderful that you could make it. You're out there in Washington, D.C. I'm here in London. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the work you're doing? And um, tell me a little bit about the work you're doing and the organization Together for Girls. What's Together for Girls all about? Yeah, so, you know, the work we're doing is... <laughs> big and ambitious, but also I think so important. Um, we focus on ending violence against children, adolescents, and youth, but with special attention to sexual violence. And because we know sexual violence affects primarily girls, that's kind of where the organization started, thus the name. Although I will say just up front that from the last decade of experience and data, we also know that sexual violence affects boys a lot mm -hmm. more than we anticipated. So we do have a lot of work we also do with boys. But really, you know, we started about 10 years ago and we are a partnership um, that includes the private sector, UN organizations, civil society, governments. And it came from this idea that, you know, to tackle a problem of this magnitude, you, there's no single actor or sector that can do this alone. So we work together um, really to, first and foremost, on the data side of things, understand the size of the problem. And there's a lot of research and evidence building we do around how big is this problem at a national level? Um, what are we really talking about here? There's a lot of silence and misconception, as you can imagine. And then we use the data and information we have 
um, to support response, you know, programs, policies that can make a difference. And part of that means doing a lot of advocacy and kind of pushing decision makers to do more on this on this important issue, which really, I think, interestingly, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic right now. We've for a while been saying that sexual violence is the single largest silent pandemic of our time mm. um, because there is so much of it going on, um, beginning to be exposed, but still people don't quite understand because of the shame and the silence how how big it really is. Yeah. And so where do you, so you're, you're a global partner. I mean, you operate yeah. in multiple countries. Give us a little bit of a feel for uh, how you came about and where you're active right now. Yeah. So we, you know, I had the, the privilege of working um, with the Obama administration under Secretary Clinton at the Department of State. And I was there at the time when Together for Girls was started and really, you know, our founder, uh, Gary Cohen, who is actually in the private sector, B.D. Becton Dickinson and Company, was doing a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa with us and others and realizing, like, very high rates of HIV infection among adolescent girls. And understanding, we all knew there was something that was going on there that was beyond consensual sex, but we couldn't quite understand the size of it. So... We partnered with CDC, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, mm -hmm. and decided to do a national study of prevalence around sexual violence. And we started just with girls in Swaziland, um, now known as Eswatini in, in Southern Africa, and really said, well, what if we took a public health approach like we do with HIV and studied at a national level, at a country level, what is the size of this problem? And really look at you know, perpetrators, times of day, locations, I mean, really go into detail like you would with a public health, you know, challenge. And this survey was born, this Violence Against Children and Youth survey. Um, and of course, everyone was just flabbergasted at the very high rates we found. I mean, we found that there about one in three girls had experienced some form of sexual violence or abuse before the age of 18. Um, and the consequences of that, of course, were HIV, unintended pregnancy, dropping out of school. I mean, there was so much associated with that. And we started to understand that this is a driver, you know, not only of, I mean, experiencing sexual violence in and of itself is horrific and a human rights violation and traumatic, but it also affects a lot of the other development outcomes that many of us care so deeply about. And so... After that, we were like, we have to do something. We can't just sit on this data. And the partnership was born as a way of saying, well, let's pull together the folks who are working on these issues, but not talking to each other, including UNICEF, mm -hmm. the World Health Organization, and others to do something about it. And since then, we've expanded the survey to also look at boys um, because we said, well, what a missed opportunity. If we're going to do this, why don't we also interview boys? Yeah. And since then, we have done this national survey with CDC and 24 governments from around the world. Mm -hmm. We have data for over 10% of the world's population under 24 on this issue. So we're the single largest repository on sexual violence data for children, adolescents, and youth. And have expounded, of course, after that to work with governments to develop national action plans in response done quite a lot of work around advocacy to raise awareness around this issue um, and really has been interesting to see 
over the last several years with Me Too and several of the other movements that have mm -hmm. been emerging, like how much more attention this issue is getting, which is good, and there's still a lot to do. The other thing I'll just say, and then I'll pause, the really good, interesting story here too is we've primarily worked in developing countries, mm -hmm. um, in low and middle income countries around Sub-Saharan Africa, Central America, now in Colombia, moving to Latin America and Southeast Asia, but are now using the survey and the methodology to actually come to the U.S. because it turns out now we have better data in those countries on these issues than we do here. So we're piloting this in Baltimore, in the city of Baltimore, mm -hmm. with CDC and others. And I think there's an interesting story about, you know, how usually we think about kind of richer countries, you know, sharing their experience and expertise with, you know, low and middle income countries. But this is, we're trying something different where it is, you know, there's so much knowledge and expertise that's come with working with these governments and developing not only the instruments around data, but response that perhaps can be applied here. So that's exciting for me too. Yeah. So on the one hand, very sobering. On the other hand, very exciting as well. Yeah. In terms of the um, the surprise factor, I guess, the, the surprise that you had when you conducted that survey initially and these unexpected findings and the scale and severity of the findings, it's not inconceivable you might find that uh, when you're doing things in a developed country like the U.S., when you're analyzing things again, that you find some unpleasant surprises there. Yeah, and I will say we, we have quite a bit of data in the U.S. that is good but piecemeal. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of pieces of the puzzle, as well as in other countries around the world, um, like in Europe. Um, I will say the U.K. has done quite an amazing job on this issue and really looking at, at it and trying to understand it. You know, Alberto, I think for the last decade, through the work we've done, but also through the work of many other organizations, we've really begun to understand the size of the problem. And the truth is that when it comes to girls and women, the experience of sexual violence, harassment, abuse happens everywhere. In the home, in the school, in work, on the street, um, in sports, in religion, Um, we've also found that for boys, you know, that's also true in a lot of different settings. Uh, for example, all the scandals we've seen, you know, in the around the world within the church, um, as well as within sports and, you know, even the Boy Scouts now. I mean, there are all these scandals happening in the U.S. right now. So I think really it's beginning to, we've really begun to understand the size of the problem. And so we've really try now to to then complete that story so if the story is it's big it's bad and that's it that feels very um onerous and mm -hmm. <laughs> depressing but what we're trying to do is shift it to yeah it's big it's bad like it's big it's happening everywhere it's a huge problem and it doesn't have to be this way and everyone has a role to play in changing that Because we do have also a lot of data and evidence around the things that work to prevent this from happening, to respond to it appropriately. And I think, you know, Me Too has helped to really open that up. But we really, as a global community, need to take that next step around not just having it be sobering and depressing, but also empowering. And like, yeah, let's do something about this, you mm -hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So you have those three pillars, right? You have the data, you have the action, and you have the advocacy. Yeah, and absolutely. 
And the survey mm -hmm. itself, just so that our listeners know, if anybody wants to look it up, it's the Violence Against Children survey. Yeah, it's called the Violence Against Children and Youth Survey because we okay. do interview under 24. Mm -hmm. If you go to our website, togetherforgirls.org, you can look and have fun if you're a data geek exploring a lot of the data per country, a lot of details there. We do do the survey, you know, the CDC, the U.S. Centers for Disease, lead, leads on that survey with national governments as part of the partnership. So it really is kind of top of the line, gold standard in terms of data collection. That's the data piece. Mm -hmm. um, as well as a lot of work we've done around solutions and evidence-based approaches to addressing the problem. And then, you know, on the action, it's about, well, once you have, you know, this information, what do you, what do, you do about it? And, you know, of course, advocacy needs to fit, in, fit sure. into that because people don't act unless there's some political pressure. Sure. Now, your advocacy efforts are, I imagine, much more successful by the fact that you're also conducting all the data and all the analysis. You're not just talking out of thin air. You're saying, look, this is, the, this is what our findings are telling us at scale. Yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, you've interviewed so many people, Alberto. I'm sure you've, you've seen this. You know, I, I remember when I was working at State, and, you know, when you're like a decision maker and you control you know, large sums of money and, and you, the decisions you make and the policy decisions you make affect, you know, large numbers of people, et cetera. Every day you have people coming to you with like, there's this problem and there's this, and you know, there, there's a lot of like decisions that, that people need to make, you know, decision makers yeah. around where to put time, investment and energy. And I would say that the three things, I think whatever the issue, you know, people need to have is, you know, the first is, you need to convince them that there's a problem and that it's a big problem. And for a long time, this issue was something where we would say, yeah, there's a problem. But, and yeah, of course, we were like, well, really? I don't think so. I don't think it's happening here. I don't think it's an issue here. And if you don't have the data to show it, it's really hard to convince people sure. the size of it. But when you have high quality national level data that says, hey, not only is this a huge problem, but you know, there are implications around health whether it's mental health, um, sexual reproductive health, there are implications around the education outcomes, economic outcomes. It's affecting a lot of the things you care about. That's important. The second piece is then, okay, well, what do I do about it? You need to have solutions, right, that can be scaled, invested in. And then the final one is, okay, how much is it going to cost? Because, of course, people need to make decisions around funding, et cetera. I think along those three, and then finally underneath that, you need the political pressure, right? You need people feeling like, okay, they're, if I don't do this, people are going to be pounding on my door and say, why aren't you doing this? So I think we've done a lot in the field as a whole in terms of the progress on that first piece around the data and the size of the problem, much more on the solutions piece. I think we still have more work to do around kind of really understanding the cost of action, but also the cost of inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm -hmm. there was, there's some work starting there and I think it's important. And finally, the political pressure. I mean, I think we've seen some of that, but I think there's opportunity to, to really scale that work mm -hmm. as well. Now you mentioned on that, on that very point, you mentioned you're working with 24 national governments to, to run the survey there. Has there ever been any pushback where a government might say, well, um, uh, you know what, possibly not that interested in having us collaborate with you guys because then that might subsequently lead to some uh, 
some political pressure being uh, coming our way. Yeah, and I think, you know, another important thing about that I think is really important around the work we do is really how we value national, local leadership. You know, I've been in enough, we were talking earlier, you know, I've worked in the UN, I've worked in, in US government, I've worked a few different places. You know, I think I've seen different models where there's a lot of like this top-down imposing things mm -hmm. and then there's really like how do you foster support and encourage the leadership that's there and really allow it to thrive and we're really trying to do the latter yeah and so we do not engage it with the survey or anything that comes afterwards until you know high level folks within national governments say we want to do this and there needs to be a lead ministry um, that takes this on. And we need, you know, at the prime minister or presidential level, like support and sign off. I will say, I think at the beginning, you know, part of that was spurred on by crisis. So, you know, there's a scandal. It's in the news. Some horrific act of sexual violence against a, t a child or a teenager. And there's this sense of we got to do something. and so. Sometimes that's the impetus, but that's fine. We'll take it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we'll go to, for the government to say, yeah, we want to do this. We want to. I, and at the beginning, usually the conversation was, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this, but you'll see over here, this is like rare and it's only a few cases and, and time and time again, that is disproven over and over again. I mean, we see variations, but every country has anywhere from, you know, a third to a fourth of the girls experiencing sexual violence and about, you know, one in eight to one in six of the boys and before the age of 18, you know, some form. And interestingly, over time, that conversation has shifted and more and more there's this sense of, yeah, okay, we we know it's going to be there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which is progress, you know. Yeah, give us an idea on what's involved in conducting one of these surveys in a given country. Uh, I know every country is different on, on, on so many levels, but what's involved? How do you get the funding? Um, how long does it take? How many, what sort of resources do you require? Yeah, so usually the way it works, and again, every country is a little different, is you need a, you know, a particular sector ministry to say, okay, we're interested in doing this. Um, perhaps I'll give you an interesting example of one we, we uh, conducted uh, recently in um, Honduras in Central America. Mm -hmm. You know, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we primarily have worked with ministries of health and ministries of, you know, gender, social affairs, sport, et cetera, um, on, on implementing these. In, in Central America, we actually worked with the justice sector because okay. there were a lot of concerns around the violence that was happening in the country, but also the relationships between migration and violence. You know, in the U.S., there's been a lot of discussion around mm -hmm. kind of migration to the U.S. from a place like Honduras because of violence. And we, you know, the government was really trying to unpack that further and understand what was going on. And so what it means is, you know, you need a ministry that says, okay, we want to do this. They then have to commit to a couple of things. They have to commit to, at some point, about a year after the survey is done usually or a year at the half at the most, the data needs to be public. 
there's always governments that want to do this and say, okay, we want to keep the findings close hold. And our condition is no, at some point it has to be public. We'll give you a little bit of time to develop a response and to talk about what you're going to do about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a, that that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll give you, we'll give you a heads up. Exactly. No. And most governments launch the data, but also whatever it is they want to do in response to it. Sure. I get it. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. You don't just want to put the problem. You want to say, we looked into it and here's what we're going to do about it. Um, there's also a commitment to have some kind of a multi-sectoral task force where you have education, health, justice, uh, finance, all represented to, to oversee the implementation of the survey, to look at the results and to think about how to respond to that. That's really important. And what we do is we, you know, CDC provides technical assistance and our various partners provide either funding, part of the funding, all the funding, depending on the country. But mostly we try to do partial funding so that there's also some skin in the game for governments. Again, mm -hmm. this idea of and kind of we always work with local organizations who actually go out there and do the survey itself. We train them. We help provide the capacity because, again, we're trying to build capacity while we go. So all of this takes from beginning to end, usually about a year and a half to two years from the moment we decide to do this, because we are investing in national leadership, national capacity to understand the issue, to respond to the issue, unlike other organizations, which is fine. You know, some people, they, you know, they'll send, fly someone in, do a survey, come back through the results. But we understand that the survey is part of a much larger process that we're trying to kind of catalyze in these countries that then leads to, you know, at this point of the 24 times we've done this survey in different countries, 13 of these countries already have national action plans that they're implementing in response to that. In most cases for the first time ever. Excellent. Um, so, yeah. Have you been, have you been heartened by the, um, by the consequences of these, um, of these surveys in terms of the actions that, uh, that that national governments have taken? Absolutely. And I always like to remind people, first of all, this is a very complex issue. It's not like a, you know, there is no vaccine. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it's yeah. not like you put a and then it's done, right? So ending violence really means that you're going to have to work on systems, that you're going to have to really look at three main components, prevention, healing, and justice. You need all three. You need a lot of work on the prevention side. There's also a lot of healing for those who've experienced this violence. And then finally, the justice piece is essential. You know, you need to keep people accountable and they need to feel like there's some, you know, fire under their feet if, if they do something. I mean, we've seen that, you know, everywhere in terms of perpetrators not, um, needing to, to face justice for the acts that they've done. And that doesn't help to end this cycle. Um, so, but we have been heartened because, and I just want to say, I'm so really proud of the work we've done over the last decade because it, it is a new field. This is a new field. But we just last year for the first time actually repeated this survey. Again, these are large multi-million dollar surveys that take a lot of time and energy, as you could tell. Um, they're population-based, they're big and national. Um, Kenya repeated for the, was the first one to repeat where we could actually compare. Okay. And they did it six years later. And we were able to see decreases um, in terms of violence. Um, 
some areas, it was interesting. The one place where actually violence increased was community violence against adolescent girls, um, which is interesting because then we're looking deeper into what does that really mean? Was this election related, et cetera? But other forms of violence actually decreased over time. In some cases, you know, like by 10 to 15 percent, which is huge at a population level. Again, you're talking about millions of people. And so right now we're really doing a deeper dive into, okay, well, what really made a difference there? But it's a good story because it says change is possible. Mm -hmm. Like we shouldn't just, you know, have this attitude of, oh my, this is so big and complicated and let's not. Like we can do it, you know, at a, at a population level. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so it is exciting. That's great. There must be parallels then. I when when we're talking about this uh, violence against children, um, youth uh, and children survey, I'm reminded of of UNICEF's mix or the I think it's the multiple indicator cluster surveys yeah. that they run on yeah. different you know in a, in a given country. And what I always find useful about those uh, mix reports is that it gives you a, it gives you know it enables you to put your your finger on the pulse of what's going on you know so that if you're looking to drive forward some interventions in a given country on a given field, whether that's nutrition or, or anything else, at least you can have your bearings. And I guess with this survey that you're driving forward in these countries, the same, the same becomes true. Um, not only useful for you and the, and the governments, but also for many uh, charities and NGOs who are involved in this field. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the mix is a great example of a survey that's been around for a while, that's been repeated. There's so much value in that, yeah. in understanding that. Similarly, the demographic health survey, I mean, there are examples of these big national surveys that then repeat and give you a lot of information, um, which is very helpful. And I think for us, the unique piece of the VAX is really that, you know, like the mix does a lot of interviewing of caregivers, which is really important. Um and we work closely with UNICEF on, on the VAX as well. The VAX being the, the violence against the children. The violence against children and youth surveys. Yeah, the ones we do. Um, but, you know, we actually interview children and youth. We interview 13 to 24-year-olds. And we have a million things, including a lot of work we've done with UNICEF to ensure that there's the ethics around that. and Because we're asking them directly about their experiences. And one of the things we found is for the issue of sexual violence specifically, if you just look at how many people showed up at the police or the health center, or if you ask parents or if you ask family members and others, you get the tip of the iceberg. You, you got to get self-report. And even then, we think in many cases, this is an underestimation, which is like, and I always say, well, if 30% saying the experience is an underestimation, like we still feel this is an important contribution. But to be able to understand not only the prevalence, but for example, you were, I was talking about Honduras earlier, there are differences between countries. Not all countries are the same. When we did the Swaziland survey, the government really felt because the scandal that, that was kind of in the news was a girl who had been raped by a teacher, um, that the problem was in the schools. And that's where the problem is. And this is a huge issue turns out school was actually a relatively safe space compared to going to and from school. Mm -hmm. So they were going to invest limited resources in kind of the schools 
when a much better investment of limited resources is kind of safe passage to school. Um, we see that over and over again. In Central America, we found that the single largest perpetrator of sexual violence against girls is a family member. In Kenya, it's a neighbor or a community member. That means different kinds of interventions. Um, do you know what I mean? And so sure. we're, it, it, it's, there's a lot of it happening everywhere, but it looks different everywhere. Understanding that nuance is absolutely helpful to intervening in the right place. Hmm. I imagine to some extent, one of the, um, one of the courses of action that might be sensible is just helping those children to gain a voice, right? To, to be able to speak up in, in settings that they perhaps traditionally would not feel comfortable doing so. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that. That is such an important part of our work. And I think a lot of the advocacy we work we do is really about we call it elevating the voices of survivors, mm -hmm. hearing survivors, elevating their voices. Um, you know, Alberto, I've been telling my story for a long time. I'm a survivor myself and, you know, made a decision many years ago that I was going to go public with my story because I just felt like the silence around this issue mm. was really deafening. I mean, if here I am, you know, with a PhD, highly educated um, woman with economic resources doing, you know, the kinds of work that I do. If it's scary for me to say that out loud, imagine how terrifying it is for a 14-year-old who's living it in her community. Um, and I just felt, I mean, this was over a decade ago, even before Me Too, you know, like part of what needs to happen is breaking the silence and removing the shame. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of us carry shame when we have this kind of experience, but that shame doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to kind of, you know, the perpetrators and the institutions that are complicit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a, a really important piece of our work, even with the survey itself, has been let's go to those directly and hear from them. And, you know, sharing data at a national level while keeping people's anonymity is a way to share those stories in a powerful way. And then there are those who want to be more public and we really help support them as well as yeah. they advocate for change. Yeah. yeah. I can only imagine how difficult uh, it must be. Did you know um, that you wanted to get into this field uh, uh, from, 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 from early on in life? Because the work that you've been doing isn't just here at Together for Girls, but when you were at the State Department, I think also you were looking at at, uh, at gender as regards global health, if I'm not mistaken, and yep. uh, and likewise at the UN Foundation, looking at uh, girls and women. So, did you know from from your experiences was that what drove you to end up where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a you know I was in a straight path. You asked me, you know, 15 years ago, would I be doing this? That's not what I had imagined. I mean, I knew. I wanted to work on issues of social justice. You know, my experience kind of growing up all over the world, I had, I saw a lot of inequality and injustice and I felt like that's something that I was really passionate about. And I was really passionate about issues of gender equality and of course, gender-based violence, sexual violence because of my own experience. But, you know, I I wasn't sure exactly how that would happen. And, and so I, you know, I worked for a long time, as you mentioned, on global health, on HIV, always on kind of issues of, of gender equity, mm -hmm. 
violence prevention. Um, and so I knew overall that that was kind of where I wanted to go in terms of kind of social justice and transformative change. And it took me a while to get to a place where I decided not only to go public with my story, but to really hone in on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly because I just, I remember thinking like, okay, someone's going to come along and is going to do this. And it just was it happening, you know? And I just felt like I, I want to be courageous. And I think, you know, I know a lot of your listeners, you know, tune in because they want to create change and, 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 and a lot of times that means having a lot of courage to talk about things that are tough and uncomfortable and, you know, shed light on things that people don't want to look at. And I, I've realized that that is really where my, my passion lies, but it, mm. it did take me a little bit to, to get to this place. Yeah. Well, it's good that you did get to it. Changing social norms. Is that one of the most difficult things? I think changing social norms is extremely diffi- difficult. But one of the things that I'm really convinced of is that we need to change the systems that are supported by those norms, mm-hmm. um, whether it's racism, whether it's you know sexism, um, this conspiracy of silence around sexual violence and gender-based violence. I feel like changing norms is not enough. Sometimes we think, oh, we're going to change norms and then the systems will change. And I think those things need to go hand in hand. Yeah, You know, the power of laws um, and, and the systems we live in every day and interact with um, are critical. And we've seen when, you know, all of a sudden it is, and this is a really good example, the U.S. just passed a couple months ago a law around safeguarding in sports. Mm-hmm. And making sure that within sports, including Olympic and Paralympic sports, there's certain things like background checks for the people that interact with the kids, a way of reporting abuse when it happens, serious investigation, accountability. Like, we didn't have that. And that's how someone like Larry Nasser, as part of the U.S. you know, Olympics gymnastics team, was able to abuse 250 girls over a period of 15 years. Um, because that didn't exist. And I believe that having that is going to prevent, you know, a lot of kids from being abused in the future. Um, so it's not just about changing a norm. It's also about those systems. Yeah, yeah. both. Where do, you, um, where do you see things going? What's success look like to you uh, in the next 10 years for Together for Girls and for the field, um, which dovetails perfectly with the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we see the work we're doing absolutely as integral to the SDGs and not just the ones that are specific to this issue, because there are a few, but really, again, as I mentioned, so much data on the interaction between, you know, sexual violence and unintended pregnancy and, you know, the what happens to adolescent girls in terms of their education and economic opportunities, et cetera. So it really cuts across a lot of the SDGs and, you know, we are really on a mission to, you know, try to end sexual violence by 2030. And I think going back to something I said before, you know, we need to continue to build the data and the evidence that's critical. And we're excited about continuing to do that. In fact, we're now working on using this methodology, like I said, in the U.S., but also in humanitarian settings mm-hmm. where we haven't worked before. And there's a real dearth of understanding 
terms of what's happening there. Um, but also around the political pressure and kind of movement building that's needed to use the data and the evidence we have to change norms and to change systems. And I, I'm you know, convinced that that time for that movement has come. Me Too was the beginning of it. And we need to move it beyond just saying, me too, yeah, I experienced that too. Oh my God, so many to like, how do we create those changes and, and make sure that perpetrators are accountable? Um, and I'm excited about, about the future. Um, I think there are a lot of challenges, um, but um, I think we're seeing something that's happening not only in, in one country or another country. I mean, this is, talk about universality of the SDGs. This is one of those issues that every single country in the world is still grappling with. And together, you know, we can learn from each other and we can kind of take a step forward in terms of ending this pandemic. Um, what's your key takeaway for our audience? What's that key thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I think that the main one is this idea I mentioned earlier where it's bad it doesn't have to be this way and everyone has a role to play, you know, whether as a parent having, you know, tough um, conversations with your kids about these issues um, is really important, whether it's as, you know, in your community and your school system and the sports team and wherever you are, like saying, well, you know, have that conversation. What is, what is the policy around safeguarding? What is the issue? You know, do we have, something in our schools that, that, that protects kids from this kind of experience um, to political action at a grand scale. I mean, there really is a lot everyone can do. I encourage you again to go to our website. We have resources, you know, for parents, for teachers, for decision makers, but action is critical. And I encourage people to find their courage to, to take on this issue. And that makes a difference. Perfect. No, I think that's um, very, very good um, parting thoughts, finding your courage um, and taking action. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today and for really your, your, your candid insight and thoughts about the problem and your own personal experiences. Uh, very useful, very enlightening. So thank you. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in and for... Um, and for sharing um, this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It always makes such a huge difference. You've been listening to Daniela Ligiero, who is the executive director and the chief executive officer of Together for Girls. Uh, Daniela, thank you. Really an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and learning from you as well. Thanks, Alberto. It's been, it's been wonderful. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining me on the Do One Better podcast today. For a full transcript of today's conversation, please visit our website at ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. You'll also be able to download over 100 episodes on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next week.